Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Will. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Well, who are we doing today? Who are we doing today for Black History Month? How are we treating the people? We are doing Dorothy Dandridge. I'm really excited about Dorothy Dandridge because I actually didn't really know really anything about her until you suggested her. Um, and do you want to maybe tell the viewers why you were interested in telling her story? Well, yeah, Dorothy Dandridge, she's just always been such an icon. I mean, she's the black Marilyn Monroe. You know, Halle Berry takes such big inspiration from her, and we'll talk about that later. But, you know, she's just an icon in our community. Everyone looks up to her, and and she stands out because she's a fatal fortune. So in 1922, William Desmond Taylor starts one of the first Hollywood mysteries when he's found dead in his bungalow. Massachusetts opens all public offices to women. My great-grandmother was born. Construction begins on Yankee Stadium. Also, the Irish Civil War begins. Nosferatu premieres in Germany, which was a classic film that you had to watch in film school. (laughs) (laughs) And the BBC is formed. King's Tomb is found. And Mussolini comes to power in Italy. You know, I think this sounds like a more fun year than the other ones. This sounds a little bit more spicy. It's a lot of beginnings, you know? Yes. It's a lot of... <laughs> yeah. It could turn a little haywire. and But also, your great-grandmother was born, so that's a total win. Because if she wasn't born, then... This podcast, this would, podcast would be happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. and what are we drinking today? You're finally drinking alcohol. What are you having? I know I'm finally... Having some fun with some alcohol. I have really, I think this past like winter, well, really this year, I really began a tequila renaissance and I've been drinking tequila like a lot, but really good, like kind of clean, fresh tasting tequila. I always do Blanco and I did it in a smoothie. So it's kind of like a margarita. Feels very tropical. Oh my God. It has some- Pineapple, tangerine juice, basil, blueberry. I just kind of put in whatever I have in the fridge and like that like sounds like it'd be good. And it's really, really good. Oh, and I put mango too. Mango and margarita is like my favorite combination ever. So it's really good. What about you? What are you drinking? You know, I'm actually having some black coffee today. It's almost midterms. It feels right. We also have an update to tell the people. Yeah. We want the people to know that we are going to be a tri-weekly podcast yes. from now on. Do you want to speak more on that? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we really love doing this podcast and to make the episodes even greater than they have been and to really be able to put our time and effort into it as much as we possibly can. We think every three weeks for a full length episode will be better for us because you know al is in law school i have a full-time job at a production company so you know we're busy like and and not to say that other podcasters are but like for (laughs) our own bandwidth like we just think we need that little extra time to to really you know do some research and make 
really great episodes for you guys. So, but we will not leave you empty handed. Yes, we're going to do a couple of mini sods for you guys. I don't want to announce them yet. I want you guys to to simmer. But we do have some good mini sods planned because those are just things that we can record just super easily like on like a Saturday morning like it's a cartoon. As opposed to these full-length episodes where you might be watching or listening to this for an hour, but we were here for about 3. <laughs> yeah, those mini sods were really really fun. And, you know, we might even do some sort of games or, you know, just this episode, this podcast is just, you know, it's fun and we're having fun. So we want you to have fun, too. And, you know, we think that our new sort of way of doing it is going to be really just beyond amazing. So, yeah. So let's jump right into Dorothy Dandridge, Dorothy Jean Dandridge was born on November 9th, 1922 in Cleveland, Ohio. Her parents, Ruby and Cyril, split before she was born, with her mother, elder sister Vivian, and she moving around constantly to avoid being found by Cyril. I did not determine if Cyril was a bad guy or anything. All I could really find that was he was a preacher and outlived her. That's about it. She looks a lot like him. But not having a father in her early life, that's going to give her lifelong daddy issues. Ruby doesn't see education as a priority for her children. We've seen that before. And after linking up with her live-in lover, Neva Williams, the girls are trained in show business. The first iteration of the act between the two girls is called the Wonder Children. Ruby stays in Cleveland and continues performing while Neva takes the children throughout California to perform. Because of this, Dorothy ends up being illiterate for much of her early life, and surprisingly, she's very good at hiding this. She would memorize everything. The Great Depression hits, however, and the foursome move to Hollywood because the work out in Cleveland or in the Midwest has largely dried up. What do you think of her early life? What else did you find? I kind of feel like anyone who grew up in the Great Depression or, you know, was a young person during it or even, you know, mid-aged person, you know, there's that really strong work ethic, you know, that comes out of experiencing the Great Depression where, you know, it was just extreme, barren, poverty, lack of resources and lack of work. Um, So I, I think Dorothy and her sisters and her mom, they're, you know, they're really determined to work and they can't rely on their father um, to provide for them. So they really have to, you know, put bread on the table for themselves. And I think this really informs Dorothy's later life of just really working hard um, and defying odds to, to really pursue her passions and to build her career. Totally, totally. And speaking of building that career, the Dandridge sisters are formed by Neva and Ruby in 1934, and it's Vivian, Dorothy, and a classmate of theirs, Etta Jones. And she's not to be confused with a different Etta Jones, who is also friends with Dorothy. She doesn't come up in this story, but I just want to be clear. They perform across the country, and their performances at the Cotton Club go so well that they decide to move out to New York. So at this time, Dorothy's about 12 years old, and she's already moved to almost every corner of the country. The girls even performed at the London Palladium before splitting up in 1940 when Dorothy went solo to pursue her acting career. In the group, her older sister Vivian was definitely the leader, even though visually Dorothy takes center stage. 
throughout this time, Neva is actually physically abusing Vivian and Dorothy. And they would say, oh, we've made it through the day without being beaten today. And one of them would say, you know, the day is not over, even if they were like all wrapped up in their pajamas and stuff. Sad. Dorothy's first on-screen role is a short film called Teacher's Bow in 1935, so this is the year after the Dandridge sisters are formed, where she's an extra. She goes on to have a couple more roles as an extra throughout the 1930s, and Dorothy knows she has talent and isn't satisfied with taking the stereotypical roles that are assigned to Black people in media at this time. She's not satisfied with that. So she gets her first credited role in 1940 in a movie called Four Shall Die, where she plays a murderer, and this doesn't really do anything to advance her career, unfortunately. During this time, she develops the stage fright that will later lead to her dependency on alcohol. After Neva assaults Dorothy in her late teens, Dorothy is motivated more than ever to escape the adults in her life's grasp and to build a family of her own. Because So Dorothy is really dreaming of this white picket fence. She sees that everything she's doing is a step toward having the stereotypically like post-war family life that she thinks that she's promised, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, earlier I was speaking about how the Great Depression kind of motivates a strong work ethic, but also growing up and living in an abusive household that's really toxic. It's really damaging to your mental health. I think it was part of Dorothy's sort of survival to really, you know, be more independent and try to escape these adults in her life that weren't really supportive for her because she wanted, you know, to have that family, to have that love, you know, to have her own autonomy. And I think, you know, leaving the family was an important step in doing that. And I think, you know, we'll see it's not exactly easy taking those steps and making it to independence, but she she does get there. Even when she gets this independence, she's still sending money home to Neva and Ruby. It's not like she's ever totally free of them. She still feels that attachment to them. Flashback to 1938. The Dandridge sisters, they're at one of their gigs at the Cotton Club. Dorothy's 15 at this time. She's singing lead. Also performing that night are the Nicholas brothers. And the girls walk in like a dream. The brothers, Harold and Fayard, start hanging out with them as much as they can you know there's harold is 17 when he meets dorothy and he loves to golf and she's only 15 so they're seeing each other as much as allowed during her courtship with harold dorothy leaves the dandridge sisters like we mentioned she begins her solo act she got a role unfortunately as a servant in a movie called lady from louisiana starring john wayne icon And in 1941, she gets to be in another film called Sun Valley Serenade alongside the Nicholas Brothers, and she does one of the most awesome performances in that movie. I think it's so fun. The song to look up is called Chattanooga Choo Choo, and it's a big dance and song number by them. So Harold and Dorothy wait until 1942 to marry, and Dorothy is just shy of her 20th birthday. She's 19, and they get married in... Harold keeps on golfing. He's inviting all these women to golf. Because her man is gone all the time, she spends a bunch of time with her sister-in-law, Geraldine Pate Nicholas, who's married to Fayard. Not long after they get married, Dorothy gets pregnant. And so she's so excited. She's finally going to have that white picket fence that we've been talking about. So it's 1943, and Dorothy is 
having actual labor pains that Harold is telling her are false labor pains. So he leaves again for another day of golf. He says, if it gets bad, Geraldine, take her in the car I've left. And he apparently leaves the keys, but no car. So it takes him about another hour after Dorothy's finally decided to go to the hospital without Harold to find a car to take them to the hospital. And in this time, the baby loses oxygen and Harold and Nicholas is born permanently disabled. And for the rest of her life, Dorothy's going to blame herself. Yeah, this is really sad. You know, I, I did watch the biopic with Halle Berry over the weekend. And, you know, this was a ha- really hard scene. I think it's really tragic when someone's partner isn't supportive of their pregnancy. And, you know, it's not like you can just easily, you know, stop a woman who wants to be pregnant from, you know, being pregnant. Like, it doesn't work that way. And, um... And, you know, I think Dorothy, I think she was really hurt by this. The man that she thought she loved didn't really care to have a child with her. And it was his child. It's just really, really, really messed up. But I feel like that's something that you could happen. Like when they have heroin, they're younger than we are now. Yeah, that's crazy. The birth of Harold, it doesn't keep Harold home. And the realities of Harold's disabilities ultimately drive them apart. Harold leaves the family in 1948, and looking back on the marriage, he says that he was too young to be a family man. Dorothy is actually the one that files for divorce in 1950, and it's finalized shortly afterward in 1951. Yeah, I think it's also really tragic that Dorothy, you know, didn't really have... I think back then it was it was definitely so hard to care for a child with disabilities because there was such a lack of information and research and science that you know well back then in the 1940s you know it wasn't as accessible and wasn't as easy and there wasn't as much you know therapies and stuff um and medicines and you know whatever but the 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 medicine just wasn't caught up at the time to to care for these children. And I think Dorothy was definitely overwhelmed, especially without her partner by her side through caring for their daughter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after Dorothy's marriage to Harold ends, she starts to kind of take back her life a little bit and attend these really amazing parties by her friend, Phil Moore, this black jazz musician and composer. He always had these parties where he would play music and let his talented friends take the spotlight And he was kind of, you know, creating a space where people could mingle and he welcomed whites and people of color, you know, people could network, they could share their love for art, or they could just drink and, you know, find someone that (laughs) they fancy and take them home. (laughs) And Dorothy frequented these parties very much. And one night, Phil invites this white music manager Earl Mills to the party. So Dorothy sings this song, A Woman's Prerogative, and Earl, when he's there, he's immediately gravitated towards Dorothy's voice. Not only her voice, but her charisma, her talent, her beauty. And from that night on, Earl becomes Dorothy's number one support system in her career, but also in her life. He really respects and loves her. But before we get there, you know, there is some hesitancy for Dorothy to actually work with him. 
So Earl expresses interest into becoming Dorothy's manager, but Dorothy isn't really convinced to work with Earl. In the beginning of their business partnership, Earl helps Dorothy get gigs in the club scene at jazz clubs, restaurants, hotels. However, many of these clubs were full of racist white people, including the staff who barred Dorothy from using the restrooms or certain areas of the hotel. You know, she was a performer and a star, but she couldn't have access to places that just, you know, normal white people had access to. And this is one of the most documented events in Dorothy's history, doing a gig at a Vegas hotel. So Dorothy and Earl, they wanted to go to the pool and, you know, Dorothy wanted to, you know, suntan, lay down by the pool. Then the stupid hotel manager threatened to drain the pool if Dorothy steps like even just an inch in. So Dorothy being kind of the badass that she is, she flicks her toe in this pool to spite the manager. And after the gig later that night, the manager had some black staffers drain the pool and clean it. I just think it's so important that we keep in our consciousness that just a couple generations ago, like black people couldn't enter into the front door of a hotel. They couldn't have a cup of coffee at a lunch counter that some guy is so spiteful that Dor- that Dorothy, another human being, put her yep. toe into the pool that it was drained. Like we just have to always remember how far we've come and how easily we could slip back into such a terrible world. So I just think Dorothy's amazing. Like, she said something that about racism that it just makes you half alive and that prejudice just makes you half alive. And I can just imagine like standing on that stage performing for a bunch of white people. But no, but like it just feels like another planet, like the divide between you and the audience probably just feels like another another galaxy. Yeah, definitely. I think in these venues that Dorothy performed at, she was viewed as less than human. You know, she was viewed as like sort of this exotic but lesser than figure who could you know play these shows and sing really well but she couldn't you know use the restroom or go to the pool or whatever and i think you're totally right you know we can't forget how how this wasn't that long ago and this also, was still in color you know, stuff like this <laughs> does happen today you know yeah So after Dorothy's venture into the nightclub scene, she becomes a spectacular, can't-take-your-eyes-off-the-screen movie star. So we've all seen, or maybe you've heard the opera Carmen. Have you, are you familiar with Carmen at all? I feel like I am, but I could totally be confusing it with another opera, and that's how I feel about literally every single one. Okay, well, this is good, because I actually made a note to for me to remind people what it sounds like or the most famous song is like you've heard that right yeah yeah i've heard that too yeah i guess okay yeah okay i just wanted to jog everyone's memory so it's about sort of this like sort of femme fatale vixen woman who's like just really like 
sort of seductive and like she kind of just like is two steps ahead of everyone and you know kind of plays games with these men who fawn over her and it's it's kind of like a fun opera obviously most operas are tragedies so there is a tragic ending to the film so when the word got out that hollywood was making an all-black musical film adaptation of carmen called carmen jones there was just an explosion of excitement for black actors there was just really this eagerness to snag a role so obviously the most coveted role that a lot of women wanted was carmen jones And Dorothy and Earl, who's now her manager, decide, okay, it's go time. We got to get Dorothy this role. This is like made for her. Dorothy meets with the director, who is the super successful and fear-instilling Otto Preminger. He's Austro-Hungarian, I believe. And in their first meeting, Dorothy gives off more Cindy Lou vibes based on how she's dressed and how she sort of plays the part and it's not very Carmen and Cindy Lou is kind of like the goody two shoes wholesome character I would say she's kind of like like Sandy in Greece before Sandy goes all badass Mm -hmm. you know yep yep (laughs) yeah so Otto dismisses Dorothy the possibility of playing Carmen so Dorothy takes matters into her own hands and she goes back to Otto she dresses the part She plays up the sexy, seductive vibes. Soon enough, Otto decides that Dorothy will play Carmen Jones. Also, I want to take back what I said earlier. I was not thinking of anything other than actual Carmen because I've been reading a book for a really long time about the guy who wrote Carmen, George Bizet's wife, Genevieve. So I'm familiar. I take it all back. I am familiar. Oh, Right. There's also a Lana Del Rey song called Carmen. Yep. But I know we don't. I literally could sing it right now, but we don't have to do that. (laughs) So Dorothy's really excited to play Carmen Jones. Obviously, like this is such a big deal. Earl's excited. She's excited. Her family's excited. You know, she just knows like she has to like really just kill it and make it really a good performance. And I watched the film over the weekend, and she really does steal the show, which I, I feel like is kind of a theme in fatal fortunes is that the people that we cover kind of steal the show. You know, they just, they're people that you can't take your eyes off of, or they have this story that's just like, so like kind of gripping and fascinating. Um, So that's just something I wanted to point out that she's really just a scene stealer, even though she is a main character. So during the filming of Carmen Jones, Dorothy begins a secret love affair with the director, Otto Preminger. And it's hot and seamy, but, you know, Otto, he can't really commit to Dorothy because Otto's married and... Otto's married and she's black is what's happening. Otto's white and he doesn't want to lose his... Yeah, he doesn't want to lose his, like, white privilege, white power, you know, his status in Hollywood. Like, he he just, he's afraid of, of losing that and... He sort of, you know, kind of manipulates Dorothy and kind of strings it along, like giving her false promises that a marriage will happen eventually or that he'll leave his wife eventually. And in October 1954, the film premieres in theaters and Carmen Jones is really kind of just the turning point in Dorothy's career. 
She becomes the first black woman on the cover of Life magazine, which is a huge deal. So though the film is a spectacle with dazzling performances, this is kind of just an editorial note from the future, aka now. Um, But it definitely kind of flies over the hardships and racist inequality that Black people experienced during that time. And this was a criticism that actually James Baldwin had of the film. Um, He didn't feel like it was the best film for Black people. Um, And, you know, I mean, I agree with a lot of the criticisms that he had to say, but I do think it did give a lot of Black actors and actresses work and you know helped further their careers which you know was a positive and it helped further Dorothy's career and a really big moment comes when she's the first black woman in 1995 not 1995 I'm like girl when When a very big moment comes A very big moment comes in 1955 when Dorothy becomes the first black woman to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress. So this is, you know, she's really just breaking walls, barriers, ceilings for black women. And I think that's something that we really have to remember her for. Mm -hmm. And Dorothy attends the Academy Awards and there she presents Best Editing, which goes to On the Waterfront, which is a movie that I really love, side note. But she loses Best Actress to Grace Kelly. And I found this really amazing research paper. We'll link it in the show notes. But they said that the Academy Awards night was kind of like the downfall or the beginning of the downfall of Dorothy's career and her life. So Dorothy and Otto, after the Academy Awards, they're still continuing this affair. And she wants to marry Otto, but Otto cannot fulfill this promise and he kind of puts his foot down and says look it's not going to happen and allegedly Dorothy becomes pregnant from Otto but is forced by Fox Studio to have an abortion I hate that which is just totally abhorrent and gross yeah it's really sad it's 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 again this kind of pattern of these men that Dorothy falls in love with that just they kind of manipulate her and when she really needs their support, like when she's pregnant, she just doesn't get it. Yeah. And after this, Dorothy's career just sort of nosedives. She has to drop out of three Fox films because she just doesn't feel like they're respectable roles to play. And, you know, Otto sort of gave her a little bit of advice, which she later regretted that, you know, she shouldn't settle for roles that are beneath you know, Carmen, like she should only do roles that she thinks are good for her acting. She doesn't really, you know, want to play these supporting roles. And as a result, she's kind of blacklisted from Hollywood. And even Earl, our dear, beloved Earl Mills, stops being Dorothy's manager because, you know, she does is not really working very professional in maintaining these contracts and yeah, working like so it's sort of is the beginning of the end. So another big moment in Dorothy's life was in 1957 when Dorothy decided to sue Hollywood Research Inc., which was the company behind the tabloid magazine Confidential for libel because they were making these really gross, disgusting, sexist, racist, you know, sort of allegations about her. 
hooking up with this guy that was a white band leader in, you know, the band that she played with. And there was an allegation that they had sex in the woods of Lake Tahoe in 1950. And Confidential, they're kind of like today's National Enquirer or just whatever, like the most trash, like, you know, it's untrue celebrity gossip magazine, like whatever that is that you can think of. That's basically what Confidential was. (laughs) And um, and this part, you know, I don't think they covered this in the Halle Berry movie. I could. I know people find lost stuff boring. I mean, been in a trance. Me too. But yeah. Well, I think this is really sort of a really dramatic moment, and I, I really wish it was in the the biopic. And you know, maybe that this is the reason why they need another biopic in the future, mm-hmm. like that could actually win an Oscar. Like, I think that would be a good idea. We'll talk about that at the end. Anyways, so in her testimony, Dorothy states, like, you know, how could this have happened? Lake Tahoe was very prejudiced at that time, and. Black people were not permitted that freedom to, you know, be out in public with white people and, you know, to have sex in the woods. Like, you know, she she knew that like that would end up, you know, in her being arrested or something violent happening to her. Like she just knew that it wasn't safe to do that or like, you know, that's not that's also just not the kind of person she was like. I don't think Dorothy would want to be like having sex in the woods like, you know, she is much more dignified. She wants and love and care and TLC to like to do something like that. Exactly. Yeah, she doesn't want you know Joe Schmo from the band. Like, come on. And <laughs> and she also says like most of her gigs, she was obligated to stay in her hotel room and you know not disturb the white areas or interact with white people. So Dorothy's case, she she wins it, and she agrees to $10,000 in the settlement. Hollywood actress Maureen O'Hara also joined in the lawsuit against Hollywood Research Inc. for untrue gross sexual rumors that they had published about her as well. And there's a really amazing photo of Dorothy and Maureen shaking hands together outside the courtroom. Needless to say having lost all these cases and having to do all these payouts to these celebrities. Cause this isn't just a Dorothy and Maureen thing. There's other celebrities that have joined in this suit as well. They have to make tons and tons of payouts and this doesn't bankrupt them right away. But the second the publisher dies in 1978, it's over and we'll be back right after the break. Guys, thank you so much for listening to Fatal Fortunes and helping us get the word out about the podcast. If you want to help us further, you can also subscribe to us on Patreon. For just $3 a month, you can listen to exclusive episodes of Fatal Fortunes and get content you won't see here. Go over to patreon.com slash Podcast. All one word. Dorothy's attachment issues by the mid-50s after her breakup with Otto are deep. She attaches herself to another silver fox named Jack Dennison. She thinks he has money, but he's using her to fund and perform at his failing nightclubs. They're married from 1959 to 1962, and the divorce puts her into a bunch of debt. Dorothy can no longer afford to pay for Harolyn's private care full time. She has to make her a ward of the state of California. On the Mike Douglas show, she finally tells the world what she's been struggling with. She says... I never really thought I could give my daughter up to an institution. 
I guess the longest period that I had been away from her was about six months. Actually, she has no conception of time. She doesn't know how long I've been away. She doesn't even know I'm her mother. She knows that she likes me and I like her, and she feels warmth and that I am a nice person. Dorothy's keeping all these financial problems to herself, and so when her house is foreclosed on and her back taxes of $139,000 are revealed, her friends are shocked. Some of them even say that if they had known, they would have saved her house. She has to move into a small Hollywood apartment. This is only eight years after her Oscar nominations. How the mighty fall. God, yeah. It's so sad that another guy is taking advantage of her and... That scene of the Halle Berry biopic when she has to give up her daughter to the state of California is really, really hard. And and I can only imagine what that would feel like, you know, because she couldn't afford Harold's full-time care. Harold was nowhere to be found to pay for it as well. She just, you know, is becoming more and more alone and... I think that's kind of a theme in Dorothy's life is that a lot of times she was alone, you know, she was not really surrounded by people that were supportive of her and kind of lifted her yeah. up, you know, so she was always trying to, you know, make it for her and her daughter, Harlan, but who was probably the only person who didn't see her as a meal thing ticket stacked up against her. Like Harlan was probably only the only person who could look at her and not demand something because everyone else in her life is just taking yeah. advantage of her. Dorothy tries to pay her debts with performances at nightclubs, but she's not really doing so hot. She's very depressed and she, you know, downs her sorrows with pills. She's sloppy in her performances and, you know, she's kind of just like lost her rhythm. It kind of reminds me of, I mean, there's so many different artists and celebrities and musicians throughout history that kind of have a similar moment before their, you know, before their death is they try to get back into their passion of singing and performing. And she passes out on stage one night during a show, which was a really big deal. And that got some of her friends' attention. Um, And she writes suicidal notes to some of her old friends, which is really, really just heartbreaking. And Earl Mills finds out about this, and he finally decides to reunite with her which, you know, Earl has been her rock and to have her rock back in her life, I think was a really big moment. And it was hard. Like, imagine like seeing your friend who like you were so supportive of and then you kind of had a falling out with and then you see them and they're just like, you know, numbing themselves and they're just like on the ground, like inconsolable, like, oof, it's hard, you know? And Earl Mills being my like favorite side character in this story, <laughs> he convinces her to put her life back on track. And of course, one of the ways that you put your life back on track is going to a health ranch in Mexico. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why that's funny the way I said it. So they go to Rancho La Puerto. And this is actually still standing, by the way. So we should definitely go. Please subscribe to us on Patreon we have, like, so we can go to Mexico. Please. We'll talk about yes. you again, Rancho. <laughs> Rancho La Puerto, if, you, if that's what you need. <laughs> we will. Rancho La Puerto, por favor. <laughs> um, so anyways, like, you know, 
Dorothy's sort of uplifted by this. She has her friend back in her life, her best friend. And Earl Mills, he wrote a biography about Dorothy. And this was kind of the basis of the Halle Berry biopic introducing Dorothy Dandridge. But in his biopic, according to the research paper that I mentioned earlier, in Mexico, this is kind of where Earl and Dorothy kind of finally profess their love for each other. And maybe they, you know, had some romance on that trip. Who knows? Um, But I like to think they did. And in June 1965, Dorothy books a gig through her friend and former colleague, Joe Glazer, at a nightclub in New York. So, you know, Dorothy's, she's getting her life back on track. She's getting her career back on track. And a couple days later, Raul Fernandez, a Mexican filmmaker, asked Dorothy if she'll star in two of his upcoming movies. Dorothy agrees and assigns a contract of $100,000, which will help pay off her debts and revitalize her career and her life. And this money can also help her possibly get back heroin in you know in her life so it's a really big deal and it it feels like dorothy's sort of just coming back from the ashes with the help of earl and you know she's destined to kind of make a comeback now if only i feel like that's also another sort of theme in fatal fortunes is that towards the end of their their tragic fate they sort of try to get back into it and, you know, they have something that's promising and it seems really optimistic and it seems like there's like this light at the end of the tunnel yeah. and like it's it's closer, but then the tunnel closes in. Yeah, a lot of these people are about to like reach a precipice or stand at a cliff's edge and look over, but they don't get to. Flash forward, it's September 8th, 1965. The day before Dorothy's supposed to leave for New York for these gigs, she twists her ankle. Later that day, Earl comes to Dorothy's apartment. It's locked, so he has to pry his way in with a tire iron from his car. He's freaking out. And he finds Dorothy laying face down in the doorway of her bathrobe, wearing only a headscarf and all of her makeup. And the cause of her death is actually up for debate. Some say it was an embolism in her broken foot, which led to blockages in the bloodstream to her lungs and brain. Others say it was an overdose of antidepressants. The night before her death, she calls Geraldine yeah. and she sings all of Barbara Streisand's song, People. So I listened to People and I was like, oh my God, that is definitely a song you sing in its entirety if you're about to kill yourself. Um, so she did that. And then she ends the call by saying, Geraldine, whatever happens, I know you'll understand. When Earl busts into the house, he finds that it is littered with letters, and one of them is marked to whoever finds my body, which says not to remove anything she's wearing and not to move anything at all, just to take her away. These people think that they're going to reach sort of a precipice and, you know, seeing the light and everything. And sometimes, you know, things that revitalize your career, that give you money, give you promises for new beginnings you know even when things that you know sort of revitalize your optimism happen it can still be hard to sort of you know fix your soul or not fix but like mend and heal your soul if it's so broken on the inside and i feel like that's yeah maybe the case with and if you're looking for healing in all the same places that broke you like But Dorothy doesn't know anything else but performing. 
regardless, Dorothy's death is still tragic. She was only 42 when she had her whole life in front of her, ready to get back in the game, and then it was all taken from her. Because you know Black Don't Crack, her career could have gone on another 20 years. Let's be real. 30. Cecily Tyson did an interview the day before she died. That career could have been another 50 years. Come on. So after Dorothy dies, it's not really clear what happens to Harolyn. After she was placed in the state hospital, it's not clear if any of her other family members ever visited her. But uh, when she died, Harolyn was only 22 years old, my age. The circumstances of her birth meant that even at 22, she still had the mental capacity of a toddler. There's a rumor that she died in 2003, but there's no death certificate to back that up. And if she did die at that time, then no one ever claimed her body as Harold died in 2001. So sad. Because a lot of people are trying to figure out what happened to her, but the state of California, they're not going to say anything. They're like, why would we comment to a stranger on the health of a disabled person? I would really, I, I'm, I'm very interested because I, I too, I couldn't find any concrete information about this. And, you know, I'm wondering what Dorothy's, I don't know, did she have any like nephews or nieces? Yeah, maybe, she did. Or, Vivian had children. I, don't know. I mean, it's really, well, if you're listening and if you know anything about what happened to Harolyn or anything, you know, about Dorothy that we had questions on and you think you know the answers to please write us and we'd be happy to share that information and learn about it what do we think Dorothy's legacy is do we think that her legacy goes further and deeper than being you know the black Marilyn Monroe and you know paving the way for Halle Berry or are there just not enough roles of hers or films of hers out there for us to look back on that are like spectacular. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that her films are what speak for her legacy. I think it's her performance. I also think, I think the research ink trial, I think that's also kind of a legacy in the way that celebrities are treated by publications. Um, well, also side note, I found that Dorothy actually went to acting school with Marilyn Monroe and apparently they were classmates at the actor's laboratory I oh my think God, it was called so a really kind of progressive new age acting school <laughs> yeah and I mean again like I don't think it was really the films that she was in because I saw you know Carmen Jones and I've seen you know clips of others um, and the, they weren't blowing me away but she was blowing me away like she was stealing the show and i she has such talent that is worthy of an oscar and worthy of you know a hollywood walk of fame but also just like people's like genuine respect for her craft like she was a real class act um and also i think she was a fighter she endured these hardships that were trying to set her back you know these abusive toxic relationships and she was still determined to, you know, care for her daughter, do what she loved. Um, and I don't know. I, I think I think she will have a legacy. I think people are really interested in her life, um, even though she's, you know, someone that you kind of have to sort of dig a little deeper for. You know, she's not like heavily covered by the media by any means. But um, yeah, what do you think? I just hope that the generations to come just keep telling her story because I'd love to see, you know, maybe Issa Rae's take 
on the Dorothy Dandridge story after Halle Berry already did her interpretation 20 years ago. So I just love to be this as like a touchstone that we all come back to because I feel like she was such a big leader in our community. Right. Yeah. Oh, also, I really hope that they actually restore and release that film Porgy and Bess. There's like no way to really watch it. Mm. Whoever, you know, is in the archives at Fox, maybe we should start like a campaign or something. Wait, this is actually crazy. The first performance of the opera Porgy and Bess was at Emerson Colonial Theater in Boston. (laughs) At the Colonial but anyways, that was like the musical opera or the op- the stage version. That, that was the stage version. But the adaptation that Dorothy was in, you know, you can kind of see really, really bad versions of it on the Internet, like on YouTube. Like, but they don't have they haven't restored this. People are really pushing for it to be, you know, restored and released. So, you know, it can be an archival record of history in the arts and it hasn't been done yet so that's also something i think should happen that'd be really cool whoever's listening please help us keep dorothy's legacy alive and thank you thank you so much for tuning into our our black history month special you know i think this is something we should do every february i know every month is black history month but i think that it's just so amazing to introduce you know the world to the ancestors well, guys, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Will. See you next time. On Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. And also make sure to follow us wherever you're listening. Spotify, Apple, YouTube. Subscribe. Like, comment. Also follow us on our social media. Instagram. We're going to get more into Twitter. We're going to get more into TikTok. We swear. We swear. uh, Patreon. And yeah, we'll see you guys next time.